Well, if you have your Bibles, open them up to 2 Peter. Am I on? Okay. Yes. Okay. I'm on. I'm on. Excellent. So the book of 2 Peter, he said, was a little intense. And I think that that is definitely true. Reminds me of some Mother's Day advice that I suppose I could give, but it was actually parenting advice that Michelle and I got when Jessica was born. There was this older pastor who um, I actually went to college with his son. And so I just, I, I looked at his kids and they were amazing people. And so when this, when this older gentleman gave me some advice, I thought, I want to hear it. And so he said, Roger, here's my parenting advice for you. And it was simple. And he gave it actually to Michelle and I. But he said, the first thing is that your kids need to know that they're loved. And I think one of the things as you read um, 2 Peter there's definitely a sense of God's love that is communicated. But he said that, so he didn't make that connection. He just said, Roger, your kids need to know that they're loved. And number two, your kids need to know that they must obey. And when you read 2 Peter, you actually see those two things. God loves us, but we must obey. And there were so many times as we were raising our kids that we were facing complicated situations and we're trying to figure out who does God want us to be in our kids' lives. And I just thought... Okay, am I expressing love to my kids? And am I communicating to them that they must obey me? And I remember when I was in seminary, one of my professors told a story about how he just said, I would always use all the details of life to try to teach my kids things. And he told a story that I actually repeated with my kids. And so when, when my kids were little, we used to tell them sometimes, don't go play in the st street. And we want our kids to realize, you know, when we're telling you things, it's because it is critically important for you. And so um, I gathered up my kids one time because we saw a squirrel that got ran over. And uh, I got my kids up. And I, I looked at this dead squirrel in the street. And I said, oh, look at this squirrel. This squirrel ignored his mom and dad. <laughs> mom and dad squirrel said, don't play in the street. And he just said, I don't need to listen to them. Look, his guts got squished out. And so my kids grew up, and they would always say things like, don't, you don't want your gut squished out, you know, and just trying to communicate that it is critically important that we obey. And that's one of the things about God is that he loves us, and the things that he tells us are best for us. And so this morning, and we'll see if we can get this thing going. We're, we're trying some stuff out, so let's see if it works. Oh, hey. We might get things working this week. That would be very, very cool. You know, Proverbs 1-7, as I read the book of 2 Peter, it really does inspire a reverence in me for God. And when you think about Proverbs 1-7, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And Peter, in this book, is giving us his dying words. They are powerful words. It's the last things that he's going to be saying to people that he loves. Now, I just think about um, one of the things that God has blessed me with is, is I've kind of been able to come alongside people that are, that are at the end of their life. Um, you know, sometimes we don't know when our life's going to end. It just happens. Other times we can see it coming. And to be able to sit by somebody's bedside knowing that they don't have that long to live, and they know that this is the end of their life. And one of the things that I've really um, just appreciated being able to do is to say, okay, if you could say one thing to the people who are left, 
what would you say? If you could say one thing to your kids, what do you want them to know? And, and I've even said to them, if you could give me advice, what would you say to me that now that you're at the end of your life? And I just think, what better advice or who better would you want to hear from than the Apostle Peter, who grew up with Jesus, spent, those, spent that time with him in his ministry, was trained by him, was a person that God used greatly in the church, and at the end of his life to be able to say, okay, this is what's on my heart. This is the advice I would give you. Wouldn't you love to be able to hear what Peter would have to say? And that's one of the things I love about the Bible is we weren't there, but we can. All we got to do is open up the Bible and read it. And so that's what we're going to do. Um, 2 Peter 1.13. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them up to uh, 2 Peter. And we're going to kind of be going through the book. I'll put a few verses on the screen that are outside of 2 Peter, um, a few that are in 2 Peter. But if, if you have your Bibles, just be ready to flip and to scroll. And, and we're going to be covering. We have three points this morning. And the first one comes out of chapter 1, the second one comes out of chapter 2, and the third one comes out of chapter 3, so it's kind of easy. But let me just say, 2 Peter 1.13 says, this is the Apostle, Paul, or the Apostle Peter, he says, I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. So he's telling them something that he's told them before. They've heard this before. And this is the interesting thing about 2 Peter. There's nothing in 2 Peter that is really unique. In fact, 2 Peter was the book of the Bible that was the most controversial about whether or not it should be included in, in Scripture. Because there were a lot of people that wrote false books claiming to be from Peter. In fact, there were about, there's probably seven or eight other books that said they were written by Peter that were not included in the Bible because it was determined they weren't written by Peter. And so this is the most debated book. And I would, you know, I'm not going to give you all the details, but let me just tell you, this was written by Peter and it does belong in the Bible. But he's reminding them of things. And one of the things about 2 Peter is there's nothing unique. Like that's one of the arguments that would fit into why it would be included. There's a bunch, but one of them is... If you were going to write a false book and kind of in, introduce some destructive heresies, well, there's none in there. There's nothing in 2 Peter that is not already stated somewhere else in Scripture. And so here he says, I'm going to remind you, verse 14, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. I've told you before, I'm going to tell you again, because when I'm gone, this is what I want you to know. So that's chapter 1. In chapter 3, before he talks about the return of Christ, he says something similar. He says in 2 Peter 3, 1, Now this is the second letter, so he wrote 1 Peter. This is the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring you up. I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Even in that, it's a reminder. He's reminding them, you need to read what the Old Testament says. You need to read what the New Testament says. He's, he's telling them, you need to hear. And so these are things that we would do well 
to pay attention to. And, and the three things that we're going to see is, number one, we need to pursue real knowledge, genuine knowledge, in a world where people just make things up and they just pursue whatever kind of suits them or seems right to them. We need to be people that are not running after myths. We need to be people that are going after the truth that God has communicated. We need to listen to somebody who knows everything. That's chapter one. Chapter two is you need to be careful about false teachers. Satan's not like sitting back and going, okay, well, there's the church. It's headed off. It's doing okay. Uh, I guess I got to move on to something else. At every time, Satan is trying to figure out how to harm the church, how to harm you as an individual, and he does that by sending people that will tell you things that aren't true. And so in chapter 2, Peter is saying, you need to be careful about false doctrine. And in chapter 3, he reminds us that he is going to return and that that should fill us with a sense of reverence for him. Because his return is going to include not just hope, it's going to include judgment. Um, I don't know if you know this, but Jesus talked more about hell than he talked about heaven. We live in a day and age where nobody wants to talk about that. And I think we can certainly do that in the wrong way. And we're, we're about to jump into this, but I want to just tell you one more story. So when I was a new Christian, um, we used to, as an unbeliever, we would hang out on Lancaster Boulevard and we would do all kinds of things that shouldn't be done. Um, the poor businesses on that street, the kinds of things that happened to them and the debauchery that was going on in that area. And after I became a Christian, there was a, a movie theater on the street there. And so I went back to that place, which I avoided after I became a believer. And so I went back there with a bunch of my Christian friends, and we were going to see a movie. And I don't remember what it was, but it, it likely was one of the Christian movies that came out or something. And there's this guy who was out on the street, and he was preaching to people, and he was walking up and down the street with a cross, and he was preaching to people, and he came up to me, and he started pointing at me and saying hostily, you are going to burn in hell. And, and he was just, like, telling me that I was going to face God's judgment. And I just remember, you know, in some ways I kind of felt attacked by that. But I just smiled and I just said, hey, well, thanks. I appreciate what you're doing. But I am a Christian. I actually just became a Christian. And all of us here that you're saying is going to go to hell. Well, we're all Christians. We go to this church and we're here to see this movie. And all of a sudden he was like, oh. And it kind of changed his tone. And you know what? We don't want to be people that are walking around, that are hostile, that are pointing in people's face and just saying, you're going to go to hell. That doesn't represent the gospel well. But at the same time, we're not people that ignore the truth of God's holiness, the truth of God's judgment. We don't ignore that and just say, oh, Jesus loves you, Jesus loves you, and never say anything else. Part of what makes the good news so good is because without it, there's really bad news. And so when you tell people, hey, Jesus will save you, and they're just like, save me from what? My life's pretty good. That doesn't, that's not such a great offer. But when you actually realize what your choices are, the salvation offered in Christ is amazing. And that's one of the things that Peter communicates to us here. 
So let's consider three things. The first thing is that we should be living with reverence, with a fear for God. That should affect the way we approach life. And a reverence for God results in the pursuit of real biblical knowledge. Let's consider that first thing. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, and let's just read. It says, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. So he's saying, you have a real salvation. It's just like ours. By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our salvation is because of Christ. It's not because of what we do. That's one of the things about the basic things in the gospel, that God wants righteous living, that our salvation comes through Christ, not because of our righteous living. You could actually just close your eyes, open the Bible to the New Testament, and read the page. It's on there. And this really is a reminder. As I was going through and making an outline for 2 Peter, I thought, well, that's kind of the same as James, and that's similar to 2 Peter, and it's kind of like Hebrews. And that's because the New Testament's full of the same stuff. And he goes on here and he says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So God's grace comes to us through a genuine knowledge of Jesus. Now in the first chapter of Peter, the word knowledge or truth is repeated over and over. Because that's something we need to pursue. Verse 3. This is a powerful verse talking about the sufficiency of Scripture. It says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. God's supernatural power has given us everything we need for life and everything we need for godliness. Now that is a huge category. And how does that come to us? Through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. So it's the knowledge of Jesus that provides for us everything that we need for life and godliness. It's found in scripture. It's found in God's word. It's amazing how some people, when it comes to the whole idea of counseling, they feel like, man, I'm having some really serious problems on a scale of one to ten. My problems are a three. I'm going to go to the church and see if I get some help there. But you know what? If you really have a serious problem, don't go to church. Go to a professional. If you got a problem that's an 8, a 9, or a 10, go to a psychiatrist. Go to, a, go to somebody else. I mean, the church can help you with some things, but the really serious things, go find an expert. Uh, I just want you to know that we have an expert, and our expert is God, and the help that he gives us is in his word. And the way that we get help is to pursue that. And if you have a really serious problem in your life, you pursue the truth from God's word. I can't tell you how many people I've seen who are facing very serious problems. Who go to people, who talk to them, who give them advice, who give them counsel that they learned in school from people with all kinds of PhDs. But that advice and that counsel is contrary to God's word, and it brings destruction into their life. Now, that is not to say that you can't get good help from somebody with a Ph.D. Because the way that God has designed life is that if you say what God says, it's going to help whether you're a Christian or not. And there are some really smart people who reject God 
but learn things that God has said is true. And they tell people that, and it's very helpful to them. But every time a person, and I don't care how many degrees you have, departs from what God says, it's not helpful. And so Peter is just saying, you need to pursue truth. Not moralism, not being a good person, but having a genuine relationship with the Lord and then living that out. And so God's word gives us everything that we need. And then in chapter 1, verse 5 through 12, he actually talks about how to live out that truth. And this is really powerful. It's seven steps to like success in the Christian life. And he basically says, add to your faith. And that's one of the things I love about Peter is he starts by saying, first of all, you have to be a Christian. If you're not a Christian, none of this is going to help you. But if you add to your faith, and then he lists seven things, you will never stumble. And the things that he mentions, we won't read them, but it's virtue. That's moral excellence. It's doing the right thing. If you add to that knowledge, so if you are committed to doing the right thing, and then you add knowledge so that you actually know what the good thing is, and then you add to your knowledge self-control, I mean, what good would it be to say, I want to be good, I want to please the Lord, and I know what that is, but I can't control myself, so I can't actually do it. What good would that be? So virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, that's perseverance. So not only do I have to have the self-control to do it, but then i got to keep doing it. What good is it to do the right thing today and then just quit doing it? So he says, then add to that self-steadfastness and then godliness which is to display God's character, to be like God, and add to that brotherly affection, that's loving people in the body of Christ, and add to that love, that's toward everyone. If you do those things, you'll never stumble. So that's what Peter says in chapter 1. He's talking to us, telling us, embrace the truth and live it out. And then in chapter uh, 1, verse 16, he emphasizes the fact that what he's communicating the things contained in scripture they're not myths they've not been made up you ever thought about the way the world approaches christians it's like oh you're a christian you're one of those weird people it's kind of like superstitious and you probably believe in totem poles and you know science tells us how we got there nothing blew up and it made everything that's intelligent, that nothing blew up and made everything? Well, nothing is matter and antimatter, and that equals nothing. No, that's not nothing. That's matter and antimatter. That's two things. <laughs> so where'd we come from? And, and it's communicated that if you believe that God created the world out of nothing, that you're believing fairy tales. The truth is that all the ideas apart from how we got here, those are fairy tales. Everything that people believe that is apart from God creating the world. And Peter says, in verse 16, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And then he refers to the transfiguration where he sees Jesus' majesty and he hears God say, this is my son. These are eyewitnesses. Look at verse 20, and I want to spend just a minute on this. 2 Peter 1.20. Why is the Bible so valuable? And I'll answer it. It's because it comes from God. The Bible is not a human invention. It is 
something God gave. Look at verse 20. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. No prophecy of Scripture comes from a human. It's not their idea. Their, you know, have you ever heard people say, oh, the Bible this, the Bible that, everybody has their own interpretation of Scripture. And people have this idea that we go to the Bible, we read it, we just make up what we want it to, to mean, and then we believe that. And Peter says, no, no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of someone's own interpretation. Why? Verse 21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I've heard people say, I love the things that Jesus says in the Bible. You know, it's like you open up the Bible, if, oh, let's just stick with the stuff in red. You know, I just want to tell you something. There's nothing in the Bible, Old Testament or New Testament, that Jesus didn't say. He said it all because the Holy Spirit moved people to write. God wrote everything. The words in red are not more powerful, not more important than any other word in Scripture because God wrote it all. And that actually places an incredible standard on the Bible because if God wrote it, it cannot have mistakes in it. The Bible says it doesn't have mistakes in it. But the Bible has no mistakes in it. I remember being a kid and going to class, and my science teacher said, yeah, I can never believe the Bible because it talks about the ark, and two of every kind of animal could never fit on the ark. And that really stressed me out. I started thinking, man, what if it turns out that two of every kind of animal can't fit on the ark? That means it's all wrong. And so it stressed me out, but I just thought, hey, wait a second. God was there. God knows everything. God wrote this, so it's not wrong. And wouldn't you know, somebody did a study, figured out the average size of an animal, and figured out the size of the ark, and there's plenty of room for two of every kind of animal, and food, and everything else. Why? Well, God says that's what happened, and it's what happened. And if you look into the details, the Bible's always right. And so that's why we follow it. It's why we're committed to it. It's why we put it into practice. Have you ever heard um, the passage that says there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it is the way of death? See, that's the difference between what God says and what people say. Sometimes it seems right, but the reality is it's wrong. What God says may seem right and it may seem wrong, but it's always right. And so that's why we follow Scripture. Reverence results in a pursuit of biblical knowledge. Here's the second thing. Reverence, living with reverence, results in a recognition. It results in a recognition and a rejection of false teaching. It's critical for you and I that when people say things that aren't true, that we recognize what's not true, and that we reject it. We need, to be, we need to know what God says so that we can compare it with truth. Look at chapter 2. But false prophets arose among the people, and just as there will be false prophets among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, 
even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. So there's people that they come, they have these secret heresies, and God's going to destroy them. Now this is, sometimes people ask me, um, who do you think Jesus died for? This is a side note. And, you know, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him would not perish, but have eternal life. And I believe that Jesus died for everyone. Even though He chose people before the foundation of the world to be saved in Ephesians 1. So He only chose certain people, but He died for everyone. This is one of the verses that helps me realize that. Because it says here in verse 2, It says that they even deny the master who bought them. This is talking about unbelievers. These are false teachers that are going to have God's wrath and judgment poured out on them, their destruction, but they deny the master who bought them. Jesus died for them, and they still still deny him. So a few things about false teaching. It's destructive. And it repels people. The way of truth is blasphemed. This is one of Satan's favorite tools. If you go to school, you'll learn about Christianity in history. And they'll talk about all the great atrocities of Christianity. You want to know what's amazing? If you actually look at who those people were and what they believed and what they did, they weren't Christians. They claimed to be Christians. And isn't that kind of a cool thing? that Satan can have his servants do destructive things, claim to be believers, and then God gets credit for what Satan is doing. And that's a lot of what happens in church history, is you have churches, but it's churches of people who aren't even really believers. But somehow God gets the credit for their behavior. And so they bring about the way of the truth is blasphemed from these false teachers that do things that God says they shouldn't do. In their greed, they'll exploit exploit you. One of the things you see with false teaching is it leads to addictive, destructive living. And chapter 2 basically just says God's going to judge false teachers. He's going to judge the unbelieving world. His wrath's going to be poured out on them. And then God says, and how do you know? Um, I think it was, uh, what was the guy's name that was preaching here before me? The interim guy? Tom. One of the things I heard Tom say in a sermon that I listened to that he preached is he says, how do you know what somebody's going to do? Well, just think about what did they do in the past. That's what they'll do next. And God just says, um, I'm going dist- to judge sin. And how do you know I'm going to do that? It's what I've been doing. And then he gives examples. And he just says, he, and Peter just says, if God didn't spare the angels, but he cast them into hell. If God didn't spare the ancient world, but he flooded them and drowned them all. If God didn't spare Sodom and Gomorrah, but burned everybody in the city. And then when he talks about these people, as you go through chapter 2, he uses these all these really strong words of condemnation, destruction. They suffer wrong for the wrong that they're doing. They're accursed. The gloom of darkness is, re- is reserved for them. You take all that language, and God's just saying, I've done it in the past, and guess what? I'm coming, and I'm going to do it again. 
See, a lot of people, they, they, they have a lack of reverence for God because they see his love. They see how Jesus died. They understand that, that God will forgive you no matter what you do. There's forgiveness that's there. And people from that have a lack of reverence for God. They just disregard God. They think he doesn't matter. They don't understand that God's holiness demands a response from us. And think about all the other examples that I'm sure you can just come to mind right now. Like uh, Eli's sons, they, they offer sacrifices in a way that they shouldn't, and God ends up killing them in the Old Testament. Um, how about Ananias and Sapphira in the church? Uh, they, sell they sell property, show up to the church and lie about it, and God kills them. How about Herod? Uh, he's delivering a speech, and everybody says, Oh, Herod, the voice of a God, and he takes credit for himself. And Acts tells us that worms just come out and eat him, and he dies. And, oh, I, I take it from then, you, didn't, you don't remember that story? Um, it happened. How about the Lord's Supper? We read that passage um, every month in church. And it actually says, Paul says, some people take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And he says, a number sleep, or a number are sick, and a number sleep. Some people have physical ailments. They get sick because they disregard God. They, they approach the Lord's table without an appropriate reverence. And sometimes God kills people for that. And it's like we, 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 just, we feel like sometimes God is one to be toyed with. And when you read the book of 2 Peter, um, am I being too intense right now? <laughs> he said the video, he said 2 Peter's intense. So am I allowed to be intense too since we're teaching 2, 2 Peter? We need to approach God with reverence. And that's one of the things I think, you know, in my parenting, I, I wanted my kids to know I love them, but that they have to obey. And if my kids ever looked at me and said, yeah, Dad, thanks, but no, I don't think I'm going to do what you say. Like, that was not a good day for them. And it's not that it never happened, but it wasn't repeated because it was an unpleasant experience. But 2 Peter 2.6 says this, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. So we need to approach God with reverence. You know, Hebrews 12 says that God disciplines those whom he loves. Now, I thought about, in my years of ministry, managing church money. I oversaw our church budget. Even as a youth pastor, it was amazing how much money went through my hands. And do you know, it was, there was never the slightest temptation for me to take any money. And a lot of times I just be places people are just giving me money. I mean, it's like it could have happened. And I think we need accountability to try to help those things not happen. But ultimately, I, didn't, I never needed any accountability because this is God's money. So if somebody ever gave me money, it could be a dollar. It wouldn't matter what it was. I didn't even put it in my pocket. I just held it in my hand until I could get it into the envelope it was supposed to go into. One time I was busy and I stuck some money in my pocket and it had some of my money, and now it had some of the church money in it. And just to be safe, I took everything out of my pocket, all my money and everything, stuck it in the church offering. There is not the slightest chance I'm ever going to take a penny from God. Um, there's, there's a reverence. God sees everything. God knows everything. You cannot hide anything. 
And so just understanding who God is, man, that, that should bring reverence to our living. Now on false teaching, I want to just show you some examples of false teaching. So these are the, the false teachers. Here's an example of one. One of the cool things about false teaching is God's told us exactly what is true so that we can know what's false. So this is from the Book of Mormon, and it's a description of the fall of mankind. Now, the Bible tells us that Satan appears as an angel of light, and if you read Joseph Smith's account of getting God's word, it sounds like he heard an, uh, an angel of light. But I know that he heard an angel of light, and this is how. There's a lot of ways, but here's one. This is a description of the fall. Now, I want you to think back to what you know of Genesis 3. In the beginning of Genesis, God says to Adam and Eve, don't eat. Then the day you eat, you're going to die. And let's just think, all sickness, suffering, everything wrong came from the fact that Adam and Eve sinned. But what was Satan saying in the Garden of Eden? God's being unreasonable. That's not really going to happen. It'll be better for you if you eat. I mean... Who was saying that sinning was a good idea? That was Satan, right? All right, let's, let's read from the Book of Mormon. We, we don't normally do that in church. but. <laughs> and now, behold, if Adam had not transgressed, he would not have fallen. Okay, so far so good. But he would have remained in the Garden of Eden. And the things which were created must have remained in the same state in which they were after they were created. Okay, that makes sense. And they must have remained forever and had no end. Okay, so if Adam wouldn't have sinned, things would still be the same. We'd be in the Garden of Eden. It would just continue on. Sounds pretty good, right? Okay. And they would have had no children. Really? Why not? And they would have remained in the same state of innocence. So somehow having kids is not innocence. Well, when you're married, having kids is not a problem with innocence. If you're not married, that's different. But Adam and Eve were married. And having no joy... Oh, so now if Adam and Eve didn't sin, they wouldn't have had joy, for they knew no misery, doing no good, for they knew no sin. See that? Um, they couldn't do good unless they did wrong. They couldn't have joy unless they were miserable. That sounds like Satan. Hey, it's a good idea if you sin. But behold, all things have been done in the wisdom of him who knoweth all things. Adam fell that men might be. And men are that they might have joy. So, you know, this is one of the things, like, as you read these writings and you read Scripture, it's like, whose voice is this? It's not God's voice. It's Satan's voice. And even though it's different words, I read that before. I read that in Genesis 3. And the one who is saying those things is Satan. And so we need to be people that read carefully, that understand truth, that can evaluate false teaching. Um, this is what God tells us about false teaching. He tells us this. Um, okay, you can't read that. Thought we fixed it. Um, this is Deuteronomy. And it says, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let's go after other gods which you've not known, let's serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. 
when you pursue truth or you pursue false teaching, it's a measurement and it's an expression of your heart. Second Timothy tells us this, that a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having their ears, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. All those people who take God's standards and they just mock them. They disregard them. Oh, you know what? God loves you. You know, the Bible says that a man is a man and a woman's a woman. Oh, no, we, we don't believe that. You know, the Bible says sex is only for marriage. No, you know, we, we don't hold to that stuff. People find teachers that will tell them what they want. Psalm 73 talks about Asaph, and, and he just says, I saw the wicked, they seemed to prosper, everything seemed good in their life, and I almost stumbled because I kind of wanted what they had. And then he says, then I came to God's temple and I perceived their end. Here's one of the ways that Peter blesses us. Is he says, you know, these people, they promise all kinds of things. They say they're free, but really they're slaves. They, they talk about the sin and how wonderful it is, but it's going to destroy them and it's going to bring God's judgment into their life. And so we as believers, we look at that and we go, okay. Uh, yes, it kind of seemed initially, you look at the movie stars and all these rock stars, these people who have all this money and their life just seems so good. But when we look at it from this perspective, we realize, okay, I don't want that. And then let's look at chapter 3. Living with reverence should result in a sense of urgency. Urgency in two ways. Urgency to evangelize the lost and urgency to live righteously. Uh, 2 Peter 3.3, 3, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days, scoffering, following their own sinful desires. And they'll say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. And then look at verse 5. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that existed was deluged with water and perished. So they deliberately ignore the fact that God created the world, he made everything, and he judged the world. They ignore that, and they say, oh no, everything's going to continue just how it is. By the way, that's what happened in Noah's day. Remember, he was preaching righteousness for 120 years, and people ignored him while he built the ark, and then they all drowned. God was offering salvation. God made a way for them to be saved by getting on the ark, and they said no. And we live in a world who's been offered salvation with many people who will reject that. And then look at verse 7. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are being stored up, for fire being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. That is what is ahead for the ungodly. Look at the world being drowned in the flood. Look at Sodom and Gomorrah being burned up. That is what is waiting for every person who doesn't have a relationship with Christ. That's their future. And they're like, oh no, I'm having fun. Today's a good day and it's always going to be like this. No. There is a day when your time is up. And we never know when that will be us. There are some people who, you know, we might die on the way to work. Today might be our last day on this earth. 
And there's also a day coming that's going to be the end for everyone when Jesus returns. And if you know Christ, you'll be with him. God has an offer of salvation, but it has an expiration date. And none of us knows when our expiration date will be. And so this is a pretty serious thing. And then look at verse 8. And it says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. So people use this verse to say that time has no meaning. That a thousand years doesn't really mean a thousand years. It only means a day. And, and we do all kinds of things with the age of the earth using this verse. What he's saying here is simply this. Um, it may seem like a long time to you that God's been waiting, but it's not a long time. It does not say one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. It doesn't say that. It says one day is like a thousand years. Uh, one day is short. Well, to God, a thousand years is short. And a thousand years is like a day. So it may have been two or three thousand years for us, two thousand years since Christ was here. That is a very short time to God. You ever think about when you were a kid? Like, like uh, somebody would say, oh, man, you can go to a birthday party next week. Oh, man, that's forever <laughs> for us as adults. Um, Hey, we've we got to do this project next week. Oh, man, that's, that's like tomorrow. The older you get, the faster time goes. Well, God's pretty old. So a thousand years is not very long in the scheme of things. So people misunderstand this verse. It's just saying that it's been very short. It may not feel short to you, but it's been very short. And then he tells us why. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, that everyone should reach repentance. So that's what God's waiting for, is he's giving more people time. So all the people that are living in rebellion against God, saying, oh, it's never going to happen, God's being patient toward them. He's giving them time to repent. And to repent is to turn away from sin and to turn to Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. You remember when, um, when they said to Peter, who preached in Acts chapter 2, what must I do to be saved? And he said, repent. Turn away from your sin. Turn to Christ. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. That's unexpected. Then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done in, on it will be exposed. And then verse 11, this is a challenge for you and I. It's what it says. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God? So... John, in the book of Revelation, after all these terrible things that he, that he predicts, he ends by saying, come, Lord Jesus. Man, we're looking forward to that day, but we realize that that's going to be a terrifying day. That, that should give us a sense of reverence. If God pours out his wrath on sin, if he's going to destroy the ungodly, should we, as children of God, be living an ungodly life? No, that's a terrifying thing. 
And so we're not working for our salvation, but we certainly are working out our salvation. We certainly should be living with a reverence for God. Not careless, but serious. God, you tell me, what should I do? That's what I'm going to do. That's how I'm going to live. And we should be driven and motivated by a compassion for the lost. I think that's one of the biggest things that happens in churches that creates difficulties and problems. People forget why they're here. And you can come and go, oh, I don't like the music, I don't like this, I don't like that, this person's irritating me. And we forget. Life is so much more significant than the little details that happen here in church. This, this is not my preference, or that's not my preference. Who cares? We're here to love each other, encourage each other, support each other, and reach the lost. And that's what we're about. And that's what I love about 2 Peter, is it kind of puts that on our agenda. So let me pray for us. Lord, we are so thankful that you've given us everything that we need. You've given us truth. You've given us your wisdom. Lord, you've told us what false teaching is and that we're to reject it and to avoid it. And sometimes sin looks so fun, it seems so inviting, and we can start to think that we're the one who calls the shots and knows what's best instead of you. Lord, forgive us for that. Help us to really focus carefully on your truth and your word and being diligent to obey you. And Lord, we know that there is an expiration date on the offer of salvation. Lord, help us to get the message to the people who need it. Help us to live in a way that reflects that we love you and that we fear you. In your name, amen.